Welcome back, HealthBite family. Welcome back to HealthBite, the podcast dedicated to bringing you small, actionable guidance to improve your mental, physical, and emotional well-being. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian Udeem, and I will promise you here no-nonsense, evidence-based guidance in the areas of nutrition, fitness, habit change, and mindset that I use with my patients and clients every day. Today, you are in for a special treat because I have with me a very special guest, Cynthia Thurlow. She is a nurse practitioner with nearly 20 years of clinical history and practice in the emergency room and in cardiology, and she brings that practical wisdom to the science of intermittent fasting. On this episode, you're going to learn all the ins and outs of intermittent fasting, why it works for health, longevity, and weight loss, and should you be interested in engaging in this intervention, how you can get started. This is really an information-filled, practical episode that I can't wait to share with you. So let's dig in. So Cynthia, it is so nice to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I've been looking forward to connecting with you. Likewise. And you are the queen of intermittent fasting. (laughs) I'm curious. I'm curious how you got so interested in this area. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and what magnetized you towards this dietary style. Yeah, it's an important question, isn't it? So I'm a traditional allopathic trained nurse practitioner, undergrad and grad school at Johns Hopkins. I was an ER medicine devotee as a nurse and then transitioned kind of effortlessly to another adrenaline junkie fueled environment, the cardiology and critical care areas. And I did that for 16 years and I love everything about the heart. I find it fascinating But after having children, I started to become increasingly disillusioned with the kind of traditional methodology, how we were talking to patients about nutrition, bastardizing fats, you know, pushing the grain initiative. And so on a lot of levels, I saw patients that were not getting healthier despite optimized evidence-based medical management. And this distressed me greatly. And ironically enough, I had a child with severe life-threatening food allergies, and that really sent me down a rabbit hole, if you will, just trying to really look at the interrelationship between nutrition and health and wellness. And so I went through a myriad of options. I was like, well, maybe I want to get my doctorate. I'm going to teach. And I took one class and hated it. And then I thought maybe I'll do a wellness coaching program. And then ironically enough, I feel like books find you when you need them. I read a book called The Unhealthy Truth by Robin O'Brien. And then I read a second book called Eat the Yolks. And I actually reached out to that author and said, where did you get your training? This is so different than anything I learned as an undergrad or a graduate student. And so I think the next day I enrolled in a functional nutrition program. And that really was really, really exciting. It was very aligned with the direction in which my uh, mindset and methodology was going. And, you know, to the credit of the practice I work for, they were actually, you know, a little humored. They were like, here's our nurse practitioner who likes to talk a lot about food. And I kept saying, it all starts with nutrition. That's what we don't realize. Around 2015, we bought and sold a house. I was, you know, only working part-time for this group, but I had a pretty stressful job. My kids were in elementary school. My husband did a lot of international travel. So there's a lot of solo parenting and it was effectively the perfect storm to hit the wall of perimenopause and 
I was not prepared at all mentally or otherwise. And so I was disillusioned to find out that everything I was doing was not aligned with how I needed to treat my body at that point in my adult life. And so I came to intermittent fasting initially because I had gained weight. I was tired. I wasn't sleeping well, all related to hormonal imbalances. I was curious about fasting and I actually stumbled upon a book by Jason Fung uh, and Jimmy Moore, which really gave me the courage as an NP to say, maybe this is something I need to consider. And I felt so much better nearly instantaneously that it validated for me that was the right choice. And that's how I initially came to it. And then I started talking about it with as many people <laughs> would listen, who of course, you know, initially people think it sounds crazy because it's so contrary to how we train and, and certainly how I learned about nutrition and snacks and mini meals and stoking your metabolism and breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And I started to really question everything. And so that in many ways is how I came to it. And then it started becoming a large part of the work that I was doing. And the irony is I, I never fully intended to be known for this. It just was a topic I knew a lot about. And when I accepted my second TED talk, I had to come up with a second idea really quickly. And I said to my husband, what do I know a lot about? And he said, oh, intermittent fasting. And so that's as easy as that decision was. There was nothing more involved when I was trying to bring that, that talk idea to fruition. And the rest is really history, but I'm, I'm very grateful um, and very humbled that I have this platform to be able to better educate women about their bodies and better educate people about this strategy. Because I think that there's a lot of misinformation, like most things that are out there by, I have to believe, well-meaning individuals. Uh, so I like to, to definitely set the record straight and do it in a way that makes it sustainable, accessible, and really taking information that can be highly technical, but presenting it in a way that, that most people will understand it. This episode is sponsored by Delbar. Delbar by Del Nutrition is a high-protein, low-calorie bar created with clean nutrients to support you in healthy weight, health and well-being. My patients love these bars and I would love to share them with you. So if you go to dellnutrition.com and sign up for our newsletter there, I will send you our top selling flavors for free. I hope it will serve you and it will be of benefit. Yeah, well, I'm excited to have this conversation because I have my own biases, yes, mm -hmm. and also experiences. And so I'm excited to have to talk to you about them. Mm -hmm. But first, let's start with, you know, the big question, because intermittent fasting is this very broad category. It's kind of a dumpster term, so to speak. Can you kind of give us a little bit of understanding into the different types and the different styles of intermittent fasting? And I think it's important because you're right. Uh, a lot of people like to dump uh, many different variations of fasting into one bucket. And, and so that's, that's how our culture is. We like to dump everything in a bucket. We like to keep it categorized. When I'm talking about intermittent fasting, I'm really talking about the concept of eating less frequently. And that could look like for one individual, it might be that they do a 16-8, which means 16 hours fasted with an eight-hour feeding window. Someone else can practice intermittent fasting and do OMAD, which is one meal a day. And I can tell you why I don't love that as a sustainable strategy. People can do a 24-hour fast once a week, and that is technically intermittent fasting, or people do more prolonged fasting, and they can call that really because what intermittent means is you're not fasting forever. It can be different variations based on someone's goals, uh, what their health issues are. There's always people that like to push the envelope. They like to be extreme. So they're never going to just do 
the garden variety 16-8. They want to do, I want to do a 72-hour fast. I want to do a dry fast. You know, these variations of fasting that, you know, I, I think have to be entered upon with good information about how to support your body. But that's a basic idea that there is a lot. It's almost like tomato, tomato. There's a lot of variation when it comes to fasting windows, feeding windows. A lot of it is dependent on who you are, what age you are, uh, what gender you are, what life stage you're in. Because obviously a 20-year-old that doesn't get a menstrual cycle because she is her, her BMI body mass index is very, very low, should not be fasting versus an obese menopausal diabetic woman. And so I, I think we really have to take bioindividuality into account. The irony is the former of which I literally got a DM on Instagram right before we joined, we jumped on this recording together. And so there's so much to unpack. And I can imagine with your background that you, you do have biases and opinions. And I want everyone that's listening to us to understand that bioindividuality rules, you know, what works for you may not work for someone else. And that is totally okay. It's really honoring our own physiology and our own needs. Yeah. And that's such an important point, I think, to emphasize and highlight, because particularly in the area of nutrition and weight loss, it is always about what my sister did, what my gardener told me, what the masseuse advised, right? And there is this sense that what works for one person will necessarily work for the other. And when that isn't the case, because it isn't, then people get disillusioned from making any attempts whatsoever. And that's really a disservice, right? To the opportunity. Absolutely. And I, I tell everyone, irrespective of gender, that, you know, trying something, there's nothing wrong with trying. I have people that will say to me, men and women, you know, I did this for a while and then I had to take a break. And I'm like, that is totally okay. I think we, in so many ways, our toxic diet culture has gotten us miss, you know, our perceptions are really misguided that we have to lose weight quickly or it isn't effective. Right. And I remind people what we really want is something to be sustainable. And we want to remain, we want to be well-grounded and we want to be happy and healthy in our perspectives because I have women that I've worked with that live and die by the number on the scale every morning. And, you know, talking about that toxic diet culture and really, and obviously I know this is your area of expertise, really leaning into the identities that people, you know, create for themselves based on whatever that number is that morning. And I just reminding people like your weight can fluctuate by two to three pounds every day, just based on like, what did you eat the day before? How hydrated you are. And it's, you know, there, there are women that will send me DMS on social media. And it's, it's like, you can tell they're anguished about that number. And I always say, I go by, you know, I think it's important. Like you take that into context, but that number doesn't define who you are. And it's like all the other things, are you sleeping well? How do your clothes fit? Do you have a lot of energy or do you not? Like really leaning into that because the, the women that, that seem the most fixated on that number, it doesn't matter what the number is. They're never going to be happy. It's never, it's never good enough for them. And it pains me to see that degree of despair over something that is like quantitatively, it's so arbitrary because it doesn't take into account all the other things that you're doing. And so on a lot of levels, I feel like fasting for many women in particular allows them to have a degree of confidence in, you know, educating themselves about like, how does true intrinsic hunger feel like, like when you're really genuinely hungry, not okay, it's eight o'clock. So I eat and it's 12 o'clock. So I eat and it's five o'clock. So I eat. And then I have to have a snack after dinner. And then, you know, maybe in between those meals, because I've been told I need to stoke my metabolism, um, they've lost that intrinsic connection with their bodies. And so I think on a lot of levels that, 
when people are in a sweet spot with intermittent fasting, when they're, they're doing it and they're doing it in a healthy way, it can allow them to feel much more realigned. Although I will say someone said to me the other day that the concept of intuitive eating, they said, you know, what's your opinion on that? And I said, intuitive eating only works if you're hormonally balanced, because if you've got leptin resistance, if you have insulin resistance, if you are struggling with specific hormonal imbalances, you can't intuitively eat because the, the hormonal regulation in your body is so disconnected. And so we had this very thoughtful conversation. And I said, in someone that's metabolically flexible, sure, you could intuitively eat, but most people are not metabolically flexible. And so I think we set people up for failure if we're telling everyone like, oh, just eat based on what your body is telling you. Well, not everyone has that communication properly regulated. And so um, it's been my experience working with a lot of women, especially women in middle age who maybe they went through perimenopause, they get into menopause and they're like, I've had 15 or 20 pounds of menopause weight. I can't get rid of. And all of a sudden they're like, wow, like I didn't realize that eating so frequently was contributing to this weight loss resistance. And now that I'm cognizant of how my body feels when it's really genuinely hungry and it needs to eat. I feel so different. You know, I have so much more energy. And so it goes back to, again, bio-individuality and, and helping, you know, support people through the process of, you know, making better decisions based on their own unique needs. There's no one size fits all, you know, unfortunately I can only speak for my own training, but I felt that through my, you know, nurse practitioner program, it was very much like this patient has hypertension. These are the medications you give. This patient has X. These are the medications you give. And yet, even before I left clinical medicine six years ago, I started getting really, really savvy. And, and even some of my colleagues would say like, how did you figure that out? And I said, well, I've just started to learn that we have to treat everyone so differently. And they're like, no, you don't. I'm like, oh yeah, you do. <laughs> you're going to get much better success, much more compliance when you're really you know, leaning into what your patient or your client is trying to communicate to you, what's realistic for them. It's not realistic to put them on 10 medications and in cardiology. I'm sure some of these people are your patients. You're on a lot of meds. There's a, it's overwhelming for people to remember when they need to take medication, what time they need to take medication. And so I, I think you really have to lean into what are the information our patients are trying to communicate to us. There's so much to unpack <laughs> there. And I don't even know. I mean, I'm interested in talking about the intuitive eating. I'm interested in talking about the scale. There really is a lot there. I will just give my perspective that I think, you know, it is this kind of all or nothing thinking that I think really undermines us. So in terms of the scale, I'm fully cognizant of how that can be a trigger for people. And I don't push people on the scale. Of course, my practice is very different. People are coming in for weight loss. And I am constantly trying to show them all of the different ways in which the behaviors are making them feel. And so having more energy or feeling you know, having a better mood from the way they've changed their lifestyle, whether it's food or, or movement or sleep is valuable, right? It's not just the numbers of the scale, but I also have an issue with not addressing what that scale really should be. And I would love to have a conversation around helping empower people to de-identify themselves from the scale and yet use the scale. It is an objective measure that can be helpful, right? And yesterday happened to be World Obesity Day. Obesity prevalence rates have gone up. I know we hate the word. We hate to have the conversations around it, but it is happening. And so 
can we empower people to use that information without overly self-identifying, self-deprecating, just using it as a number? Quite honestly, it's easier said than done. I mean, I preach this every day and I would be remiss to say that I don't have moments that I jump on the scale and I want to bash that thing across, (laughs) you know, fling it across the bedroom. It is true, but it is a practice just like everything else. Getting to the point in which we can have that conversation with ourselves, that we must approach this with self-compassion, with self-acceptance, even if we need to or seek change. I also want to touch on the intuitive eating piece because I agree with you that intuition is a different, difficult thing, particularly if we have, during the pandemic, for example, set ourselves up for habitual behaviors that we weren't otherwise used to. So many of us have gotten used to going into the pantry when we weren't previously because we weren't at home or reaching for a glass of wine on the regular when we weren't before. When we stop those behaviors, our bodies genuinely crave it, want it. The dopamine is screaming at us. And I think it's important to tease out what is right for our bodies and what has become this habitual, mental, and neurotransmitter-mediated response. I can certainly tell you that to sit on the couch and eat bonbons all day my body feels like it wants that sometimes, right? I could convince myself that my intuition is telling me, sit your ass on the couch and eat bonbons. So I think it's, again, we have to, we have to really tease out what these things mean. And I think it's important to be transparent. And I have no problems admitting that what I cannot moderate, I eliminate. And so I will give everyone an example. For me, I've been gluten-free for over 10 years. I put an autoimmune issue into remission just with doing that. And I don't do well with like gluten-free cookies or gluten-free cake or gluten-free anything really, because I can't moderate it very well. Like one cookie becomes five and then I feel terrible (laughs) and it starts this vicious cycle. And so for me, my, one of my greatest treats is dark chocolate with some macadamia nuts. So I get a little sweet, a little salty, but I can moderate that. And I think it's so helpful for people to know that even clinicians who have all this knowledge and understand the physiology and the psychology behind these choices, we are real people. (laughs) We are real human beings that experience a lot of these same, these same challenges. And so, you know, the thing about the scale that I want to touch on is that I will weigh myself a few times a month just to kind of mentally check in. Mm -hmm. But I would agree with you if I step on that scale and it's not within, you know, my normal range, you know, this five pound up or down range, which can happen to us, depending on where we are. I, I, I can get off that scale and be like, okay, we got to clean things up. <laughs> it can be a check-in, but, but I think on a lot of levels, it, I, I know how that for me, a couple of times a month, I can process. If I stepped on it every day, that for me would become a maladaptive pattern for me personally. And so I recognize that. And I think for a lot of women, I'll, you know, if if I find that they're really struggling with that, I'll say, well, maybe what we need to do is create one or two days out of the month. So, you know, you're, you anticipate when they're coming, you know, when they're going to be, you can see, you know, where you are in time and space. Do you need to kind of tighten things up or are you doing really well? And it just validates some of the choices that you've been making. But I jokingly say sometimes the scale is a liar because I, I, I think on a lot of levels along with that very toxic diet culture, 
that control piece for a lot of people that's control. They get on that scale and they're like, yes, I haven't gained a pound or yes, you know, I'm doing exactly what I should be doing, but does us a tremendous disservice as women in particular, because we are such a kind of aesthetics focused culture. But I love that you are cognizant and aware of some of the hiccups that have happened for a lot of us over the the past two years with being socially distanced, not being able to do, you know, a lot of the activities, not being able to connect with our loved ones the way that we would like to, hoping that we're on the other side of this and that things will will feel a bit more normal moving forward so that we can get back to a lot of those routines that for many of us allowed us to feel sane. Like for me, I, I jokingly talk about during the pandemic, one of the few things we could do because the Washington DC area was pretty, was pretty shut down was I would walk. And so one of the things that one of the blessings of the pandemic was I got outside of nature every day with my dogs who probably were walking four or five miles a day because there was a lot that I couldn't do. And getting out in nature was a good thing for all of us to do. And I got my husband doing it. I think on a lot of levels, the past years have taught us a lot about ourselves and certainly a lot about our culture in terms of how we have all tried to mitigate the stress that we've experienced in the best ways we know possible. I do want to get to the conversation a little bit more deeply about weight loss as we've touched in intermittent fasting. But first, can we talk a little bit about the health benefits? Um, And sometimes these things are separate. Uh, I do also want to get into the fact that health or healthy eating may not be synonymous with weight loss. So can you first explain the the health benefits of intermittent fasting and maybe a little bit about like the mechanism in an easy to understand way that I know you can share with us. Yeah, absolutely. So intermittent fasting, a lot of people come to it because they want to lose weight or they want to change body composition, but there's so much more to the benefits, things that I consider to be a little less, people may be a little less aware of. And, you know, first and foremost, one big surprising benefit is that, uh, you know, with the ability to tap into fat stores for energy. So in an unfed state, your insulin levels are going to be low. Um, they will eventually get to that point. And so your body is able to effectively tap into fat stores for a source of energy. These fats are fatty acids. There are specific ones that can be broken down into ketones and ketones are just a type of fat that our body can readily use for energy. And one in particular can be diffused across our blood brain barrier. And this is important, uh, beta hydroxybutyrate. And it's this beautiful ketone that provides a lot of mental clarity. So with lowered insulin levels, mental clarity, and a lot of energy. And this is a big surprise. This is the one for me that really solidified why this was going to be a strategy I wanted to continue to employ. So more energy, more mental clarity. Our brains love fats. I I think a great deal about the fact that we have a good reduction in inflammation. And so people sometimes will say, I don't really understand what inflammation is. And, you know, you stub your toe, there's a degree of acute phase inflammation that occurs there. What we're looking at specifically is chronic disease, chronic inflammation. So if you've got insulin resistance or you have an autoimmune issue, you have this chronic inflammatory response in the body. And we know that when we're eating less frequently can help reduce that as well as reduce oxidative stress. And we'll tie this into the mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of our cells. And there's a term called autophagy. And what autophagy is, it's a big, fancy scientific word. It's like taking the garbage out in our bodies. When we're in an unfed state, our body is able to go in and get rid of diseased 
disordered organelles, mitochondria, et cetera, we're going to create healthier cells. We're going to create healthier machinery within the cell. This is really important because our mitochondria are the powerhouses of our cells. And north of 40 years old, most of our most of us have some degree of dysfunctional mitochondria. If you have a chronic disease, you have dysfunctional mitochondria. And so this also ties into that energy piece because with autophagy comes this process of recycling the mitochondria, mitophagy. This is a really beneficial um, aspect of eating less frequently. And this also kind of ties into the fact that when we're in this unfed state and we're getting rid of all these disease disordered proteins that our body no longer needs, it reduces our risk of certain types of neurocognitive disorders. And so I always like to think about how women are, are largely protected from a lot of neurocognitive issues till we go through menopause. And there's a whole tie-in with estradiol signaling in the brain. But I think it's also really important to talk about Parkinson's and dementia and Alzheimer's and how um, this can also be very helpful for cleaning up plaques in the brain, things that don't belong to breathe that, that does not belong as also reducing our risk of certain types of cancers. And so, you know, when you think about uh, what goes on in, in much most cancer development, it can be a tie-in related to our bodies using a different type of fuel source. And so a less efficient one, um, but really understanding that uh, fasting is so much more than just the body composition piece. It also can improve our lipid profile, can improve our blood sugar, can improve our um, blood pressure. So all these biophysical markers are certainly super, super important. And then, you know, leaning into gut health, this is huge. The more I understand about the gut microbiome, the more humbled I am truly humbled, because if you fast long enough, you can improve that epithelial lining in the small intestine. If you fast long enough, you can get to a point where you're uh, inducing some telomere length and also some stem cell activation. And so on a lot of levels, there are many, many benefits to intermittent fasting that far extend beyond the physicality. There's so much more intrinsically that goes on in the body. And, and obviously there are more benefits beyond that, but those are usually the ones that people are like, wow, I had no idea. The ones that are, I, I feel are super important, especially as we are trying, I don't like the word anti-aging, but I like the word longevity. I like quality of life. These are things that definitely can improve both of those, you know, both of those variables in ways that are, you know, very benign and attainable. And the last thing I would say is that if you're choosing to intermittent fast, you know, the benefits are another benefit is it is flexible. So whether or not you're a cycling woman and you know, there are certain parts of the menstrual cycle where it benefits us to do more fasting as opposed to others or you're someone that's on vacation and maybe you overate and you decide you're going to fast a little differently on vacation. The beautiful thing about fasting is that it is flexible. And this is a super important aspect. Like there's not a lot I'm rigid about when it comes to fasting. I do have a couple things, but most things about fasting are designed to be flexible so that they adapt to, you know, wherever you are, wherever you're traveling, if you're on vacation, not on vacation, you know, you're in a position where you can't grab food, you're going to be able to, you know, manage and mitigate whatever experience you're dealing with day to day or week to week. Yeah. And I want to know to that end, is there a cutoff, right? Because you're talking about this flexibility. Is there a cutoff in terms of the hours of fasting that allow you to reap these health benefits or cellular benefits, you know? Yeah, no. And I think it's a great question because autophagy is one that people stumble over. You know, they want to know exactly when exactly does autophagy get upregulated. And I just say, well, we don't know. I mean, we, we think we know based on 
research, but I, I typically say the longer you fast, the more autophagy. So are you getting benefits if you do digestive rest for 12 hours? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Positively based on what we know, 16 to 18 hours is when we know you're going to really start leaning into those things. Does it mean if you fast 15 hours that you've failed at it? Absolutely not. You're still doing benefits. So we know it really starts to pick up speed around 24 hours. For a lot of people, they can effortlessly fast for 24 hours once a week. That's not a big deal. I have other people that want to push the envelope. They want to do a 30 hour fast. They want to do a 48 hour fast. But it's much like when we learn how to, to ride a bike, we want to put the training wheels on. We want to get the basics under control before we do longer fasts. Now I do have women in particular that like doing prolonged fasting for a variety of reasons. If they really feel like it's the way they get their inflammation in check, they get their food cravings in check. And so they will, in conjunction with their healthcare team, they will you know, endeavor to try those different modalities. But I would say the longer you fast, the more autophagy but it's not to suggest that you're not still getting benefits if you're doing 16 to 18 hours. And for a lot of people, even doing 18 hours a day, I mean, they feel so fantastic. They're like, I'm still doing benefits for my body, but it ultimately all comes down to what are your goals? I think that's a, a huge differentiator. There are some people that, you know, they want to do one or two 24 hour fasts a week, and then they have a more kind of modified approach the rest of the week. And it really just depends on, you know, what you're looking for, what kind of benefits you're focused on. So how would you determine, uh, you know, what kind of fast you want to engage in? Are there certain big ticket items that you could share in terms of how we would make this choice? Well, I, I think that you want to get to a point where you've mastered the basics. So once you get to 16 hours and you're fat adapted, meaning your body is able to effectively utilize either glucose or fats as a store, as a source of fuel. And that's an important differentiator for some people. It may take two or three weeks to get there for others. It could take six and that is okay. I find for a lot of um, individuals that are more carbohydrate focused, uh, maybe that's an area that they've really had to restrict their carbohydrates to get to a point where they're finding they're, they're becoming more metabolically flexible. You know, those individuals, we want to make sure in particular that they are aligned with mastering that 16, eight. And then once they're fat adapted, as I said, we can start experimenting. I always say that I like flexibility. I like people to vary their fasting schedule. So, you know, Monday through Friday for one person could be 16 hours, one day, 20, the next Maybe they do a 22 hour fast. Maybe they do an 18 hour fast. Then maybe they do another 20 hour fast. Now, if someone's still in their peak fertile years, so if you're 35 or under, I am very, very protective. Our bodies are exquisitely sensitive to nutrient sensing. You know, the, the communication between our brains and our ovaries is very, very attuned. Yes, there are women that are under the age of 35 that can fast, but I remind them like your body, even if you chose, choose not to procreate, your body's mission, it endeavors to be able to procreate. And so you have to be more careful. It may be that you fast a couple of days a week in your follicular phase, you know, the, the beginning of your menstrual cycle, and you don't fast the last two weeks of your menstrual cycle, because especially if you're lean, if this is someone who's obese or, you know, kind of struggling with PCOS or other things, you, you might need a very individualized approach. Now that's one category, you know, women under the age of 35 and very protective of their reproductive, their reproductive pursuits. Women that are in perimenopause, five to 10 years preceding menopause, ladies, if you're in your late thirties, early forties, you're there. There's no question. This is a, a unique time in a woman's life as our, our, and I'm oversimplifying as our ovaries are producing less progesterone, puts a little bit of a strain on the adrenals. You know, all of a sudden women are not sleeping as well. They're more anxious and depressed, which is a byproduct of this loss of progesterone. 
we can have this relative estrogen dominance because we have more circulating estradiol to progesterone ratio. And you may start to gain weight. This is what started to happen to me. You know, your breasts are really tender. You just don't feel great. And so this is a time when I remind women in perimenopause and menopause, the four indicators that are critically important, you have to aim for high quality sleep. This is something I tell every woman, if you are not sleeping through the night, please do not add in another hormetic stress. Hormetic stress is beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. Make sure that you're fueling your body with anti-inflammatory nutrition. What does that mean? It's again, very individual, but it means you're really focused in on high quality fruits and vegetables, you know, animal protein, if that's what you choose to eat, you know, pastured, wild caught fish, eggs, et cetera, um, leaning less on processed foods. I think that's very, very important. I see a lot of women that are very sensitive to gluten and grains and dairy and alcohol and sugar, especially at this time, thinking about stress management. And that's not five minutes out of the day. That means you have to endeavor to integrate some stress management into what you do every day. And you can even get very creative with us. And then doing the right types of exercise. This is another common issue that I see. Women are doing CrossFit or Orange Theory Fitness uh, five days a week, and they're not giving their bodies an opportunity to rest and recover. And so their bodies are really seemingly very burned out. And so this is when fasting may not be the most effective thing for them to be doing. And the same applies to postmenopausal women, women that have gone uh, more than 12 months without a menstrual cycle. So when you were asking about how do we determine what the best you know, selection for fasting windows. A lot of it, if you're still menstruating, a lot of it depends on where you are in your menstrual cycle. Again, from the day you bleed till before ovulation, this is when you can push your workout. This is when you have the ability to do longer fasts. Once you've ovulated, as you're getting closer to tail end of your luteal phase, you have to be careful for a variety of reasons, but this is not the time to be more than doing 12 hours of digestive rest. Um, and for the women that are in perimenopause that have very irregular cycles, this is, you know, not a super, uh, super scientific way of saying it, but I've gotten to the point now where I suggest, you know, make sure your healthcare professionals draw on an FSH, because if your FSH is greater than 40 on two separate occasions, you may be closer to that menopausal timeframe than you realize. And I'm now seeing more and more women go through in their mid to late forties that I am even women sailing into their 50s, still getting a cycle, although they're not ovulating. So average age of menopause here in the United States is 51. So that's the other, you know, kind of caveat. And, you know, the other piece is really seeing like, what is someone's goal? If someone's really looking, if they've got 30, 50, hundred pounds to lose, they may benefit from doing some longer fats in conjunction with their healthcare professional, because they may need to adjust medications. This is where I always come in and say, listen, if you're a diabetic, if you have high blood pressure, if you're on chronic medication, you see a specialist, make sure someone is looped in so that you can be, you know, monitor a little more closely. You may need less medication. That would be a great thing, but you also don't want to get dizzy and pass out at home because you're on too much medication. You want to make sure you're checking your blood sugars more frequently. And that's usually where I start from that. I do like variety in the fasting, the fasting schedule. I think a lot of it's depending on where a, a woman is in her life stage, what her, where she is in her menstrual cycle. I know there are a lot of women breezing through their forties on IUDs and on oral contraceptives. So they have no idea where they are. They don't know mm. what part of their, well, they're not in a cycle. They're in a kind of a blunted uh, disconnect between their HPA axis and their ovaries. But I remind them, you know, there are things you can do. I mean, we've, I talk a little bit in the book about seed cycling as an option or kind of looking at the lunar calendar and saying, 
you know, the, the day that you get, uh, the day that we have a full moon, you can count, you can count that as the, your bleed day and you can kind of vary things that way. I found that that's been helpful. A lot of women, I always say, go back to your healthcare provider. If you're on hormonal contraception, you're in perimenopause. This is a conversation to have with your healthcare provider. I'm not providing any medical recommendations, but I can understand where that can be challenging for patients when they're trying to figure out like, where am I in my cycle? If they're not yet menopausal, but they're not getting a month, a monthly blood flow. Yeah. And I want to shift now to talk about weight loss a little bit, because of course that's a big consideration in the perimenopausal and menopausal timeframe, given these hormonal fluctuations that you talk about, the fact that women start to change their body composition more rapidly towards higher fat, less muscle, the fact that fat deposition is more in the midsection, like men, uh, as compared to more, you know, all over the body as we're used to in our younger years. And I certainly agree with the aspect of fasting, which says, or which promotes a break, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think for a very long period of time, we have been sold this idea of you need to constantly eat and snack and graze in order to maintain your metabolism, which is total bullshit. I don't know where this <laughs> came from, right? And, and it's such a hard notion to dispel because it has become so ingrained in our conversation around how we should be consuming food. So certainly having 12 hours of just not eating is great. Or even the, the premise that, you know, you should stop at a certain time at, at night and not go back, that is so powerful, you know, not going back into the pantry after seven or eight, or even 8pm. That is where a lot of people's issue stems from, is that nighttime eating while they're in bed, or when they should be sleeping to your point, which is a double whammy, right? Not only are they not getting adequate sleep, but now they're also using that time to eat. But there is a lot of data on hunger hormones, or at least physiology on hunger hormones data that shows that the longer you go without eating, the higher your hunger hormones go. So fasting actually promotes hunger. Um, I certainly have a lot of patients who come to me and say they've spent all day not eating and then they're surprised to know that they're famished at the end of the day and can't stop eating, which why should we be surprised, right? If we don't eat all day that we would be hungry. This is a slight anecdote and admittedly I haven't done it long enough, but always in, in anticipation of having a guest, I try and purview into their world. And so I downloaded an app and for a week tried to do the intermittent fasting. I'm not a huge breakfast person, but ever since I was pregnant, you know, almost 20 years ago, I started eating breakfast for my pregnancy and then it became a habit. So I'll have a protein shake or a high quality bar or a couple hard boiled eggs or, you know, a Greek yogurt. And for me to have put away that 70 calorie egg or 120 calorie yogurt and not eat until noon, I became ravenous. Mm -hmm. I found that I ate more. I had a harder time satiating and controlling my hunger or getting, you know, behind it. And also that my cravings for junk food really increased as compared to the time when I would just eat two eggs. And so I want you to, to speak to that, you know, to mm -hmm. the fact that the fasting does increase hunger, may increase hunger for highly palatable foods and how this is conducive to weight loss and when it is not. 
No, and I, I think the the power of the N of one is really significant. Mm-hmm. My first thoughts when people say that their cravings go up or they feel like binging because they fasted too long. Well, in our you know primitive brain and our amygdala, uh, you know the, our reptile brain, if it perceives there's this threat of no food or it's stressed, it'll override the prefrontal cortex, and all of a sudden we're we're not able to make those same changes. And so when I, when I'm teaching someone how to fast, this is how I kind of walk through it. You stop snacking because when you stop snacking, it'll force you to reallocate your macros, your protein, fat, and carbs. So you'll be forced to put enough protein and protein is the most satiating macronutrient. So when you're transitioning from, you know, rip the bandaid off, no more snacking, you're going to have three meals a day and you kind of set that up. You're going to have a protein dense meal for each meal And that will help stabilize your blood sugar. You know, one of the things when, you know, people fast for too long and they say, oh my gosh, I'm famished. I wanted to binge. I overate. And it's because they went beyond that threshold. So as people are becoming more metabolically flexible, and I'm not by any stretch of the imagination suggesting that you are not, but it's been my experience when people stack their macros. So that first meal a day, maybe you're having bacon and eggs and some avocado, and then, you know, eat four or five hours later and you have, maybe it's a piece of steak, a piece of salmon, you're having you know, a piece of chicken on a salad, and then you're having dinner and you're doing the same. Once we get your blood sugar properly managed and mitigated, you know, you slowly start moving that, that window open. And, and I know for a lot of people that are listening saying, well, that's great, Cynthia, I don't have the ability to, to break my fast at 10 o'clock in the morning, run of the ability to do it at 11 o'clock. We'll do what works best for you. It may be that starting out with a 14 hour window, maybe it would, you know, allowing you to have the opportunity. Maybe you finish dinner at seven and then at nine o'clock in the morning, maybe you're in route to work or you're, you know, first starting off with the patients, you have that protein shake and you're starting at that 14 hours. So I think it's a little bit of give and take to find the right quantity. And I always say cravings are there for a reason. It's more often than not when our body has not gotten enough nutrition and it's looking for something like a quick fuel source, or maybe we're stressed, or maybe we haven't slept well, or maybe we're in the spot in our menstrual cycle where, you know, we're going to experience more cravings because our body's looking for a little bit more in terms of caloric intake. That can be a time when you have to back off. And so it's always fascinating to me that for some people, it may take a period of time. If you went from eating dinner and then eating breakfast 14 hours later, and you really pushed it for more hours, your body may not have been in a position where it was ready to do that. So always kind of back off on the fasting, maybe do a little bit of a shorter fasting window. The other thing that I think is important to touch on as it pertains to nighttime eating chronobiology. So this kind of circadian clock in our bodies, um, we actually have melatonin clocks, circadian clocks in our gut. And this is why I usually encourage don't eat three hours before bedtime, because what will happen is you'll suppress your intrinsic melatonin secretion in response to your body saying, okay, I've got this food bolus I'm trying to digest. This is why like I I laugh. I know I've been wearing an aura ring for about a year and Mm -hmm. my body does not like me eating after a certain hour. And it does, it's Mm -hmm. you know, it's squawking at me, like get in bed, your heart rate was off. You didn't sleep as well. Not as much REM sleep, certainly not as much deep sleep. And so I I think it's, there are so many things that contribute to the success of someone trying fasting. And I'm so glad that you tried it. And it could very well be that this is not the right strategy for you. But generally when I'm coaching women in particular through this, I usually say, okay, let's back up. So next time we're not going to break our fast at 18 hours. We're going to break it at 14 hours and see how we feel and make sure we have 30 to 40 grams of protein. If you can manage it in that meal, because protein will keep you satiated And the other tie-in for women in particular, and men for that matter, with getting adequate amount of protein in 
is that after the age of 40, we lose muscle mass. It's not a question of if, but when, and you have to work very diligently at helping to Mm. maintain it. Why is this relevant? So sarcopenia will happen. The more muscle mass we lose, the less insulin. Which, which, sorry, I just, I'm going to interrupt you, which we should explain sarcopenia being the loss of muscle mass, which then invariably gets replaced with fat, right? So even a lean person can have a poor body composition, meaning high fat and low muscle, but on the outside, they're a size two. Yep, exactly. I used to call that tofi, you know, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. But really why this is so important is to try to mitigate this loss of muscle mass is that the more muscle we maintain, the more insulin sensitive we are. We want to think about muscle as this organ of longevity. We want to be attuned to the fact that it's not just so that we look good in a tank top or that we have, you know, muscle definition. Muscle really is this underappreciated organ. And so I tell everyone, this is why I want you to get enough sleep. This is why I want you to hit those protein macros. This is why I want you to do some degree of strength training, even if it's body weight exercise, even that can be very effective. But that's why, you know, the, the protein for me is always the, the lever that I push. I always say it's always constant fats and carbs depend on, you know, where I am and in, in what I'm doing and the work that I'm doing with women, but tying back to your experience with fasting, it may just have been too long of a window, but I also acknowledge depending on the types of occupations that we have, I have the great luxury that I, I work in my house. So if I need to get up at 10 o'clock in the morning and go grab something to eat, I can do that. But when I was rounding on patients in the hospital, that probably wouldn't have happened or I would not have been eating the healthiest thing because it probably would have been a bar. <laughs> something shoved in my pocket that I could eat you know, discreetly mm. in the doctor's lounge really quickly while I was rounding. So leaning into that and recognizing that we're all individuals, but I do love that you tried it. And I think for anyone that's listening and is curious about it, you know, look into it, like taking little baby steps. You know, I'm not expecting anyone to go from eating, you know, three meals and snacks and eating up until bedtime to going to a position where you're doing 18 hours fasted. And I I, I think in fact, there are people that will be miserable trying to do something like that. And like, I am a fan of doing things slow and steady wins. That's kind of my standard mantra. And you stop snacking, then you restack those macros. You make sure that you're not hungry in between meals. And then you, you know, go from, dinner to breakfast. And then you see how you feel. You reassess. If you feel great, great. If you don't, then okay, then maybe I need to, you know, be more conscientious with my last meal of the day. Maybe I need to go a little more sleep. There's so many variables. That that in and of itself, I think is such a huge win, right? If we can, because I acknowledge that fasting, whether you want to call it fasting or not, we were not intended once again, to be consuming at all hours of the day, to your point, having that window before bedtime, right? in order to promote the productivity of our gut bacteria is just one example. So if we can just get to the point where we go back to three meals a day, where we take that adequate break for sleep and then use that time for sleep, right? Because when we're talking about hunger hormones, uh, you know, we could be doing all this work and eating and consuming protein to suppress those hunger hormones. But then when we're getting inadequate sleep, we're, we're undoing what we've done because we're now ratcheting up our ho- hunger hormones from sleep deprivation. I also like this point that you brought up about protein because it feels like it's so cliche these days and I'm not a fan of the keto diet. I'm not really a fan of any diet in particular. Oftentimes patients will come in and I'll push the, the point of protein as the singular problem or singular issue that has resulted in excessive weight gain during perimenopause. 
you know, sometimes they're frustrated because it's like, you know, not novel. But to your point, you do have to be diligent about getting that protein in. And it is not what the RDA tells us, right? The, the RDA that's put out by the government says 40 grams of protein to 50 grams per day, whereas that is, you know, one to two meals per yeah. day. Yeah. And I, um, I think that's, you know, for me, that is one of the great travesties that most people are under consuming protein. We're eating the yes. wrong types of fats and we're eating too many of the wrong types of carbs. And that has really left us hungry and non-satiated. Like I know for myself, I was telling my husband yesterday, I had three meals in my window and, and people on social media were like barking at me. Why, why are you eating three meals? I said, because I was hungry. I was trying to hit my macros and I lifted heavy. And that was, you know, why I did that. I said, here's the thing. If you have two meals a day and you get hundred grams of protein, or if you have three meals a day and you get in the hundred grams of protein, that's okay. I always say aim for more with each meal. Like if you're starting where you're having, you're having very, very little protein, maybe you're having a small piece of chicken or a small piece of fish. We'll just aim for a slightly larger piece next time. I think giving ourselves grace and, you know, not being so those limiting beliefs that people are like, well, I didn't get it today. So it's not going to happen tomorrow. Well, tomorrow's a new day. I would say tomorrow's a new day. We get to rewrite our narrative the next day. I think it's so, so important for people to understand that we are constant work in progress, that it's not an all or nothing methodology. And so, you know, nutrition, it all starts with food. And in my mind, it all starts with food, but knowing that you can be working towards that metric, whatever that metric is that you and your, your healthcare team decide is right for you working towards that metric. It took me a while. I mean, I wasn't eating hundred grams of protein at the very beginning. In fact, when I learned that I needed to be eating more protein. I was shocked. I was like, Oh, I thought I was doing everything right. And much to your point, you know, whether it's the, the keto bucket or the low carb bucket or the paleo bucket or the plant-based bucket or carnivore bucket, we probably can take, if you do the, any of those purely and in a nutrient dense way, what we're really speaking to is eating less processed food, because yeah. when you do it right, it's not keto junk food and there is no carnivore junk food that I'm aware of, but you know, paleo junk food, it's really eating real foods. Well, that's from a, a great point state. because I think sometimes when people do the fasting, they think, think of that eight hour window as a free for all, mm -hmm. right? So nobody said pushing in all the habit, our poor habits into eight hours will do any service to us as opposed to spreading out those poor habits over the course of 12 hours. So I think you know, I, I think we can agree on this. And I do like to give people kind of actionable bites, <laughs> actionable health bites, which is number one, um, we shouldn't be eating all day long. We shouldn't be eating six meals a day. We do need rest from food and that will give us health benefits as well as potentially weight loss benefits. So really looking at, are we giving ourselves that window between, between dinner and breakfast? Many of us are not. Are we giving ourselves that window in between meals, particularly, you know, breakfast and lunch, which tend to be such a short interval? Um, we may need to rethink the need for a snack at two hours when we can wait to four. So I think that's a great place to start. The second point being that nutrients mattered, right? It's not just about a matter of eating per se, but what you're eating and protein is still remains the most satiating and what is going to help prevent that decline of body composition rather as we get older. And then that nutrition should really be 
uh, characterized broadly because sleep is a nutrient too, right? Absolutely. Movement is a nutrient too. And incorporating all of those things in terms of our, our, our nutrient status. I like that. How does that feel? I think that sounds great. And we're, we're very aligned on that. I, I think one of the things I've learned after taking care of so many patients over a long history of, of doing this is that we have to give ourselves grace. Uh, you know, each day is an opportunity to start anew. So if you had a day yesterday where you fell off the fence, proverbially, and made some choices that were not aligned with the direction you want to head in today, you have the opportunity to get things back and better aligned. And this happens to all of us. Like I I've gone through, gosh, and since the pandemic started, we sold a house, built a house, lived in two temporary houses amongst the pandemic and kids and school at home, and then it being in a new area and running a business. And so there've been times when I'm stressed and I know I don't make good food choices. And I just tell myself, okay, tomorrow's a new day. I'm rewriting the narrative tomorrow. And so everyone that's listening to this, the recognition that even as clin clinicians, even as women, uh, we do have to give ourselves the opportunity to, you know, try again the following day and just to be working diligently towards your goals. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're all human. And I love the, the concept of beginner's mind, which I know we discussed on your podcast and is in my, my book, which is a old Buddhist concept of, of starting each endeavor with a beginner's mind as if you're doing it for the first time. And that allows us to let go of yesterday's baggage and not let it intervene or interfere with the opportunity in this moment. You know, the unfortunate part of that is that when we carry that baggage, not only is it burdensome, but it prevents us from showing up 100% to, to this moment in time. So I love to end with that, that tip of you know, starting anew every day and, and approaching this with a beginner's mind. This has been so educational and I, I love the fact that you have this uh, background that you do, um, that you bring this with a scientific eye because there is so much fake news out there in terms of health and nutrition. And it's so important to have people in the field that are, that are savvy and knowledgeable and can weigh the pros and cons. Again, maybe it is for you and maybe it is not, but at least we're, we're coming at it from a place of, um, of scientific rigor. So I, I thank you for that. Thank you. And um, for those people who want to learn more about you, Cynthia, reach out to you. I know you have a book that just came out a few weeks ago. Tell us a little bit about that and how we can learn more. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So my book is called Intermittent Fasting Transformation, IF45, and it's a 45-day program designed for women leaning into our physiology and our hormones and talking about the science and making it very accessible. And so during the 45 day plan, I walk you through day to day, what to do, what to eat, how to do it, uh, leaning into your own physiology, teaching you a lot of information that I think navigating our cycling years, but also perimenopause and menopause. And it's my hope and my endeavor that I can empower women to, you know, embrace their life wherever they are. Like six years worth of work rolled up into one book, really designed. It's the first book designed for women 
about women and what makes them unique to intermittent fasting. And so you can find that on my website, which is www.cynthiatherlow.com. You can grab it on Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore. Dr. Adrian's been a guest on my podcast, Everyday Wellness, where I've been able to interview some of the most amazing individuals in the health and wellness space. And then you'll find me on Instagram and Twitter where I'm a little bit snarky. And then I have a free Facebook group called intermittent fasting lifestyle backslash my name that is full of men and women that are just looking for really good, supportive information about um, navigating fasting and other health related uh, topics that are, it's a super nurturing, positive environment. I always say I'm anti-drama, so I don't tolerate any of that in my groups. Um, But yeah, that's the best way to connect with me is probably through my website. Wonderful. And we'll make sure to um, link all of those in the show notes. Um, and thanks again, Cynthia, for being here. As always, uh, you can find me at Dr. Adrian Udim on Instagram. And if you love this podcast, found it of value, please share with your friends, family, and people that you love. Um, knowledge is power, right? And so let's spread that information. Thanks again, Cynthia. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all for this week. I want to thank you for your time. Time is our most precious resource, and I appreciate you spending some of that preciousness with me. If you love this episode, please share with with someone who may benefit. And for more of this kind of content, check out my book, Hungry for More, Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out. You can find it on my website at dradrianudim.com. And of course, as always on Amazon, have a great week. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye now.